I think the, the number one mistake that companies make is they say, well, you know, I was looking at AWS and Amazon's pricing, and so therefore I want to do it this way. And I keep, you know, wanting to say on the phone, and I often do, you're not Amazon. Right? <laughs> your, your revenues are 20 million or 50 million. You're no, you know, you're looking at the evolution of 170 takes on their pricing. Welcome to the Blind Spots Podcast. This show is designed to help marketers and researchers understand just how to address blind spots in key go-to-market areas through primary research efforts. This podcast is brought to you by DoubleCheck Research, an established leader in win-loss and churn research and analysis with a mission to help clients improve their win rates by turning buyer insights into competitive advantage. My name's Ryan Sorley. I'm a founder, a researcher, a soon-to-be author, a husband to one and a dad to three, and your grateful and humble podcast host. Each show, I will engage with marketing, sales, product, and competitive intelligence experts in the B2B technology space in meaningful and thought-provoking conversations with actionable strategies on how to help product marketers and those with a love for research drive value across their organizations. organization decides to package and price their offerings may make the difference between tremendous success or epic failure. The process to roll out new pricing is not for the faint of heart. It's often super complex and jam-packed with risk, unless you have someone like Chris Mealy on your side. Chris is the CEO of Software Pricing Partners, and over the years, Chris and his firm have helped hundreds of technology and service organizations build best-in-class monetization strategies that they've used to help fuel their growth. Listen as Chris defines what the key elements are of a monetization strategy, why it's important, and explains just how to get started on this episode of Blind Spots. I am super excited for today's guest, Chris Mealy, who's the Managing Director of Software Pricing Partners. If you have done any work in the pricing space, you're a product marketer, a pricing manager at a SaaS-based software company. You've likely come across this in your journey or worked with them. You go to their website, they've worked with hundreds, it looks like hundreds of software companies and services organizations over the last 30 years that they've been in business. There's nobody that knows more about SaaS-based pricing than this guy. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So let me just kind of kick it off with why pricing? Tell me about your journey. How did you end up there? Well, I uh, worked at Ernst Young for a while, and then we started a software company in the late 90s with a friend of mine. And that led to on-prem software, which was the dominant thing at the time. And then we decided in 08, uh, when we were getting hiccups about the market crash, the upcoming market crash of 09, a couple board members said, this might be a good time for us to make our journey to the cloud. And at that point, we're about 10 years old of technology, so it was the natural time to reach out. I think we talked to a couple different firms and through the Harvard Business Network found out about software pricing partners. So we hired them. We ultimately, I ended up meeting the founding team, hired them. And over the next five years, we would spend our time elevating monetization to be on par with product management. How how do we design the product around its packaging and pricing? How do we think about 
all the ways in which we'll make money before we sort of build the product and then figure out its price later. And so then uh, when I exited that in 2013, I picked up the phone, talked to the founder at the time, and he was looking for a partner. And I was curious about maybe a right-hand turn on my career. And one thing led to another. And then ultimately on 018, the uh, founding team retired and uh, we purchased the business. And that's how I ended up at this really great gig. So when you talk about monetization and you you wrap it in with product, tell how does that work? I mean, I, I would we we get a lot of questions from our clients about pricing and hey, what questions can we ask to better understand our pricing? How we compete with other organizations? But they're really starting from the point where they have pricing, <laughs> they have a product, right? And now they actually have to go out there and think about upgrading it or changing it or what considerations they need to think about when when looking at pricing. So how does, it, how does that work exactly when you're building it together? Well, so you first have to sort of ground yourself into the, not just the ecosystem, but the sort of evolution of where that software company is. And so what typically happens is the company has attracted a certain amount of customers and as they attracted more and more customers, there's now a breadth of diversity inside of their customer mix. And now they can start to pinpoint, well, that customer, gosh, they really should have paid us 5X. And that seems like a crazy deal that they're getting. I mean, look, they're paying us 1800 a year and they're ripping out and supporting a $20 million business. And these issues start to appear where there's a sense, a strong sense that they're not getting paid fairly for the value that's being delivered. And then the symptoms that are coming back are always reported. And this is why I love the name of your show, Ryan, blind spots. They're, they're always reported in the funnel of, a, of an issue with price, right? Because we're not at the right price. And so our discipline of monetization expands the dialogue outside of the price point, And we get into things like packaging. How do you put together maybe a good, better, best or a tiered product offering? And what's the science behind that? And then, you know, should we be a consumption-based model? Do we really want to go that direction? And do we want to gear the sales team differently for that? And that's called licensing. You know, do I charge you what basis, what's in the quantity field of the contract, if you will? And so there's these, you sort of peel back the onion and there is this licensing component where you have to think about, well, geez, that kind of scales my revenues. If I get that wrong, I could be super small. If I get that right, I could be super large. And then you have packaging, which is, well, how do I put a configuration of capabilities together in a way that a customer wants to buy something. Because if I give them all this a la carte stuff, I'll blow their hair off, right? Because this is intellectual property. It's not a car. There's a million things our software can do. And then finally, you know, what is a reasonable, rational, and transparent way of computing the price for what I'm buying and at what volume I'm buying? And that whole science, we all, most of us come from this orientation around product market fit. That's why product management is this great discipline. But nobody really gets into what we would call product market profitability fit. That's where we bring monetization, we bring pricing and some of these other levers that you can pull to activate everything. And, and what you're really trying to do is you're trying to say, okay, how do I have rich expansion sales? Hey, Ryan, you bought 10 units and now I want 20 units. And how do you get a rich sort of upsell where you know I bought the basic edition and I, I don't need any more units, but I need more capabilities. I need to go from basic to enterprise, for example. And then ultimately, how do we do cross-selling? I bought one product, but I really would like to position two or three products to you that you buy upfront rather than the one that we had before. And that happens much later in the journey of a software company. And so all this stuff comes together and this 
crazy world of strategy and tactics that all have to be blended together to mix just right to have a great formula on the sales floor for uh, getting the deals that you want. And it turns out that there's a lot of science, there's a lot of art, and a ton of discipline that is missing from inside the software business model that we sort of instill inside of our customers. So it sounds a bit overwhelming. <laughs> like all of those moving parts that have to come together to, to come up with a, a best guess, right? Based on science and the research that you do, but they're really hoping right at the at the end that they have a solid structure in place that will convert, people will see the value. Like how does somebody get started? What is the path that an organization should take to start to move forward and build a more optimized option or options or bundles for for their their solution? Well, the first is acknowledging that, like I did, you tend to glom on to a piece of the whole story. And it might be, we don't have the right price, but that's not really the whole story. And until the organization recognizes that this is a serious discipline, you're sort of stuck thrashing, right? You're, you're sort of, you're, you're given one uh, fifth of the Lego set, trying to build the whole, you know, Ultraman or whatever it is that your seven-year-old really desires to build, but you just can't build it because you don't have all the pieces. So until you admit as an organization that this, this is a serious discipline, I can't do this on my own, I need to get help. You want to learn this stuff. These are frameworks and methodologies or things that you can do on your own. And you want to do this once in an accelerated, disciplined process. And then you want to have uh, some sort of ongoing internal discipline to continue to monitor that. The worst thing you can ever do is mess with your pricing and then not ever touch it again. Because if you think about it, you're always attracting new customers as a software company, right? So if you're always attracting new customers, you tend to attract some uh, ducks. And maybe that one becomes like the dominant one or is destined to be a really vibrant ecosystem of customers that you're going to attract. Well, as you attract, and we talked earlier about that diversity of customers, they have different needs. They have different wants, which means your packaging and your pricing needs to be very vibrant and flexible and needs to evolve also. And I, I think the, the number one mistake that companies make is they say, well, you know, I was looking at AWS and Amazon's pricing. And so therefore, I want to do it this way. And I keep you know, wanting to say on the phone, and I often do, you're not Amazon. Right? <laughs> your, your revenues are 20 million or 50 million. You're, no, you know, you're looking at the evolution of 170 takes on their pricing. And the other worst uh, case scenario you can do is, is sort of say, well, I see that Apple charges their iPhones in this way. And I'm saying, that's hardware. That's B2C. That's not, you know, again, you're, you, you can't, if you compare yourself to IBM, you know, you, you just can't get there from here on day one. And so that means that you tend to overcomplicate things a lot. And I think pricing, especially monetization in general, is the art and science of the trade-offs that you make to keep things simple. Because we're engineers. We love things to be super accurate, right? And then super accurate means super complex, right? Which means a salesperson is scratching their head like, how the hell am I going to price all this stuff? Like, this doesn't make any sense. I got to spend two hours on the phone with my customer just to have them understand how this works, right? We hear that all the time. I mean, that's a big objection during the loss interviews that we conduct. It's, it's not about the fact that it was more expensive. It was the fact that the sales team couldn't really articulate why it was the pricing structure as it aligned to that particular organization. And, yeah, and, I, and I think tucked under there is if you can't comprehend the pricing, what that means is you can't estimate what your total cost of ownership might look like in year one and year two and year three. And if that's opaque or 
obfuscated in some way, or it's hidden in these crazy spreadsheets, or it takes you 12 hours just to come back and explain that to me because you've got to go run this fancy algorithm. It's just too much. And so, you know, we see the same thing. You just, you, you see this sort of tar that gets into the sales process and just slows everything down because all of a sudden what should be a very simple dialogue becomes a very complex dialogue. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase in sales, a confused buyer never buys. Well, if you can't describe your pricing in a few short sentences, listen, I've sold deals at $19 a month all the way up to multi-million dollars a month. If you're in like sentence three, you're starting to unwind things. <laughs> I mean, it just, it really needs to be very simple and straightforward. So what is your view on discounting? Because it's out there, people do it. Some organizations have discounting strategies. What is your, your perspective on that? Well, some organizations have discounting structures in place, and this is all over the map. And some organizations really are many organizations in one. And what I mean by that is each salesperson is almost like its own business. You know, Ryan, you're out here on SMB and you believe it should be handled this way. And so your net prices are calculated and maybe some fancy spreadsheet you built just for yourself. And then this guy over here kind of does it a little bit differently. And this gal then does it a little bit differently. And so we have the extreme version of that where customers tell us stories where their prospects will call in and get multiple reps inside the organization to compete against themselves. So that's the when it's really gone wrong. Anytime that you discount without a rationale, this, this idea of a discretionary discount. So, so there are scheduled incentives, structured incentives, we'll call them. And then there's really stuff that happens on the deal desk that really should still be structured. And a deal desk's job is to say, I'm bringing net new value to the equation. And maybe you're the first logo in banking, so we're gonna have an extra incentive for you, Ryan. But when we get into the bucket of discretionary, buyers are super sophisticated right now. So this, this idea that we can leave discretionary up to the reps or the CRO or other things is really dangerous because we have procurement teams now in the enterprise space. We have very sophisticated operators that understand the game. And if they think there's somebody in the back who's making an arbitrary decision on their discount, the sales cycle goes, whoop. if your sales cycle is 30 to 90 days, bingo, it's 90 days, right? Because Nobody wants to be taken advantage of. And so if you ask me what my perspective is, I think that in the 90s, selling with wide flexibility on discretionary discounts was the norm. I think that now transparency, especially on top of COVID, is hugely important. So imagine you bought software from SAP and I bought software from SAP and you and I are on the plane and we bought the same thing. And I find out that you paid a million for the software and services. And I paid 2.5 million. And we determined that I bought the same exact thing that you did. Somebody's really upset, right? So this is the stuff that destroys brands. And by the way, this all comes out in competitive intelligence. Every time you discount, you put a little data point out there for somebody else to find, some procurement team to find. And so on, on top of COVID, today's buyer would be very incensed about taking advantage of that. You know, if I paid two and a half million, and let's just say I was on PPP funding, and I'm trying to keep employees employed. I mean, you, you just trashed your, your brand image, right? So I think what's happening now is there's this metamorphosis that is occurring. And some customers will be late towards the transition and other customers are early. Transparency, logic, being able to describe the rationale behind your pricing, being able to be less of the song and dance and the magic discretionary discount and more of the here's the menu and here's how discounts are earned and here's how this works. And if you happen to meet this criteria and we get you qualified for the deal desk, you can earn an extra X percent, but it's scripted. 
right? It's not up to some magic person in the back to just say, eh, you know, Ryan's a nice guy. We'll give him 7% more off. And, and the faster they, that companies make that shift, the, the better because COVID has really accelerated that phenomenon. And any sort of world crisis can accelerate that phenomenon. I've never seen more value vaporized inside of the revenue model than discretionary discounts gone wrong. There's a huge drag on your revenue model. It's something that is, we hear people complain, buyers complain about the selling organization starting at one point and then the closer they got to the end, the more competitive the deal became, they kept dropping their price lower and lower. And it just upset the buyer because they're thinking to themselves, geez, they were trying to sell it to me for $2 million. Now it's $500 million. How much were they really trying to screw me at the end of the day, right? 500 grand. Yeah, I think you I'm meant sorry, sorry, that, 500 yeah. grand, yeah, yeah. the opposite <laughs> direction. I wish it would go the other um, way. But they feel like, they're, you know, they feel like that, it, that, that it's something that's disingenuous and that they should have started at that point if, if that's where they were going to end versus ended at that point. When I was out of college, I needed sales help. So I, I got a sales coach. And for five years, they sort of climbed through the attic and had me read all these sales books and listen to all these uh, podcasts. And I spent hours and hours doing this. And what you learn is that the timing of which you talk about pricing is hugely important, right? If I talk about it early up in the sales process, I might spook somebody out. And if I talk about it late in the process and the number is changing, well, then we have the phenomenon that you just talked about, which is we have this disingenuous or used car sales kind of thing. But this is what happens when there's no logic and discipline around the pricing because that salesperson has a commission and they're saying, well, I might have up to 5 to 10% and I need to figure out when I'm going to you know, debut this. And so that phenomenon that you're describing is a telltale symptom that the structure of the pricing is missing, right? There, there's a missing component at that company that you interviewed where the salespeople are, are sort of fabricating how net prices are produced. But, the, but when you do that late in the sales cycle, it's not received very well. So one of the things that you had said earlier was about price to value and being able to tie those two things together so that when you are presenting your price, you have a strong story to tell about the return that that organization is going to get on that investment. And you know that in some situations is easy for salespeople. If they have a great solution, they have strong customer testimonials, they can prove by sharing a lot of that information that they can actually deliver on what it is that they're promising. In other situations, it's a bit more challenging. It's a bit soft, right? And it's a trust fall, right? Well, I'm going to have to trust you as a salesperson that this is the value that we're going to get. And if they're not totally convinced that that is the value that they're going to get, that it is a trust fall, that's where I feel like people start to pick apart pricing. Is that accurate? Is that Are there different stages? So the, the, the story that you just told talked about how somebody unbundled things and, and tried to beat somebody up on the price. Is that somebody who doesn't see the value? Or is that just somebody? No, that's just a yeah. The, or is that just a, a typical the, welcome to the new buyer. era of the procurement yeah. teams? Yeah, they're just you know procurement teams for enterprise software specifically are hiring pricing professionals for their team to outgame the unstructured discipline of the software company, and and they're they're winning really well. You know they can do all sorts of fun things, but. So there's a lot of different buyers and they all all buy for a handful of different reasons. It's not infinite reasons, just a handful of different reasons. But what buyers especially are trying to do in COVID right now is mitigate risk. And 
mitigating risk might come in the form of, well, I need a half a million dollars of software. It doesn't have to be half a million. It could be 50 grand of software, but I don't want to outlay that cash right now. Or even if it's on a subscription basis, I don't want to sign up for that commitment because in times of uncertainty, whether it's with elections, whether it's with world pandemic, or you may have read Ebola now broke back out in Africa. You know, when people feel times are uncertain, people get cautious. And when people get cautious, people start to control their spend or watch it really closely. They need more sensitivity around that. And so how this translates into the world of pricing is not to lower your prices in the pandemic and maybe not even to raise them in the pandemic, but rather what you might be able to do is activate those other aspects that we talked about, which is as a reaction to some of the things that are happening, which are sales cycles are extending, people are taking longer to make what we call a considered purchase, you can start to manipulate your offering. You know, So for example, at uh, Double Check Research, you might have a lighter, more entry-level kind of thing for something that you offer to a net new relationship that's never heard of you before. You know, They didn't come in on a word-of-mouth referral. And that's something that maybe sets the stage for them to then take down the full service offering. So that that's an example of, it has nothing to do with pricing. You, I mean, it does because you're creating a new offer and it needs a price. But you see what I mean? Like it's it's, it's not a, a risk price. reduction. It sounds exactly. like, you know, yeah. and, and buyers are trying to mitigate a lot of risk right now. A lot of risk right now. You just have to know that and you have to be sensitive to that. But if you're sitting on your sort of licensing, packaging, and pricing approach from yesteryear, you know, you've maybe had a dip or maybe you've had an uptick and you haven't even really revisited that, you know, that's... That's not a good place to be right now. You're either missing out on a ton of value because you're about to ride the storm on the way up, or you're you're having excess damage from riding the storm on the way down. And then what advice do you have for organizations that are neck and neck? They're the you know number one and number two in a particular space. What advice do you have for those organizations to really differentiate their offering in a way that is more competitive? Well, so you're you're probably talking about a mature market where, you know, let's take um, customer feedback in that space. You know, one would argue it's commoditized, but the monetization strategy is a wonderful differentiator, right? Let, let's take an environment where let's use artificial intelligence and everybody loves the idea of, well, I'm going to charge you based on the number of times that you run my AI model. And let's take an example like a facial detection algorithm. So now you're going to sell this to me and I'm going to hook it up to 170,000 cameras with a mix of 24 by 7 footage. And some of the cameras are maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or some cameras are on on the weekends and others aren't. And I'm now supposed to figure out what you're going to charge me on the number of times I'm going to run this model. I have no idea how many faces it's going to detect. I have no idea even what's in the guts of your software, how many times you're going to run it. So in that space, there's a lot of facial detection algorithms. I mean, that frankly, some of those are in the open source, right? And so, so now the question is, well, how do you differentiate? Well, if everything kind of looks the same, maybe the manner, and we call this licensing, the manner by which you want to license that technology, maybe on a different basis, maybe not on, a, on the number of times you run the model. Maybe you want to go in a different direction. Maybe you want to find a way to make it simpler. Maybe you want to better address the risk of your client having an, an unfortunate misestimate. You know, consumption strategies are horribly difficult to sell because they are sometimes at risk of the customer who thought everything was peachy keen. And then like by January, February, March comes around and now they're using 10 times as much and all of a sudden this monster bill comes in. Now there's things right. you can do to, 
to soften the blow of that, but but that's a double-edged sword, right? So how you package, how you price, and the manner by which you want to license your technology. And by license, I don't mean the legal lease. I mean, again, what are you going to count? Are you charging based on users? Are you charging based on some other aspect? That turns out to be a wonderful differentiator, a wonderful way to instill stability with your customers and long-term growth and not to punish them. You know, one of the things that lots of markets do is they charge you overage. Like if you right now took down an education software, one of the most common things they do is they charge you based on, uh, I think it's called active monthly users, which basically says, we're going to develop a course together and we're going to put it online, Ryan. We have no idea who's going to take it, but we're going to buy a batch of active monthly users, call it 200 this month. Now, here's how it works. It's a wonderful strategy. Are you ready? I'm being facetious, by the way. Um, <laughs> if only 100 people take the course, you're going to pay for 200, Ryan. But if 250 people pay the course, uh, take the course, the extra 50, we're going to charge you one and a half times the rate. Does that sound fair? You know, and, and so now we talk about you know, highly competitive markets. The reality is that HubSpot started charging based on the number of contacts in a database, which is not an ideal licensing scheme. There's actually a wonderful article from Darmesh out on it. And it's something that everybody's known for a really long time. Not all contacts are created equal. But guess what everybody else did in that space? They copied it. So everybody now is charging based on the number of contacts in the database, which really doesn't correlate very strongly to value. If you've ever sold before, you could have a million contacts in your database. And if they're all, let's say, in Zimbabwe and you don't serve Zimbabwe, what's the point, right? So this idea of copying what the competition is doing is insane. We, we have a, uh, a client that we engage with and they had a dominant competitor. And on the 10K, it says, we have no idea what's going to happen with this consumption strategy. It's horribly risky. You know, it's all documented there. You read this and think, why would the company ever even try this? Like, we have no idea if revenues are going to drop. We have no, I mean, it's a really raw statement. But here is this other company just copying their strategy, hook, line, and sinker, everything they can get and complete with, you know, trying to get internal documents or anything to get their hands on to replicate it. And what they don't realize is that when they copy that, they're copying the template of risk of that organization. But they don't think about it that way. And there's a wonderful book called Different, and it talks about this phenomenon that I stack my strengths and weaknesses up against the competitor who does the same. So we spend all of our product marketing budget on the weaknesses. And within two years, the buyer's like, eh, everybody kind of does the same thing. Give me the lowest price, right? Like it's all, it all looks the same. Now, I can tell you lots of funny stories about how they're not the same. Right. And so the key is to get some good ethical competitive insights on that. When you break apart those different research streams, you have the competitive research, which is, is clear. You want to know what your competitors are doing in the pricing or monetization space. You have win loss, which could give you some insight into how organizations feel uh, about pricing and, and, and other areas. Is there a buyer? You know, how do you get information from buyers on the value of the solution? that that can inform your approach to? Well, so first you get a huge amount of intel from win-loss. You get a huge amount of intel from the competitor's customers, right? Okay. So yeah. what they didn't see is really super valuable. And then often the product management team and the, you know, if, you, if you're a software company that has, you know, more than a handful of customers, you've made enough market progress where somebody in customer success and somebody in onboarding and somebody in the partner channel and somebody over here that um, is on the sales team and especially product management who literally is chatting with customers and understanding the workflows and building the product and building the roadmap. That is an enormous rich landscape of 
Intel. The problem is the internal software company doesn't see it that way because it, it's not in one person's brain. It's dispersed among all those audiences that I just described. And so pulling that picture together is a wonderful picture and a wonderful story. And if there are gaps in the understanding, then targeted research is really, really important. So let me give you an example. We had a customer in the HRIS space and historically they sold to SMB in mid-market and they told themselves that, well, we don't do enterprise because that's super complicated. We're going to just you know, stay in our swim lane and we're going to experience high growth. In the project, in the transaction data analysis, we could see, well, wait a minute, they've sold to some companies overseas and some other companies who are really big brand names. I mean, that's not SMB and mid-market over there when you look at it. And so we took a cross-section of a highly targeted segment that had been completely ignored. Even the lead scoring algorithms just completely stripped any company above a certain size out of the hopper. No sales team could even get access to them because the organization had bought into this sacred cow that those are too complex. And we were able to see, wait a minute, let's, let's redefine complexity. And complexity wasn't based on the number of employees wasn't based on the size. It was based on the configuration of their HR department. And I can't get into the details, but there's a very, very succinct way of teasing out what that actual complexity was. Today, that company sells to the enterprise sector and is in hyper growth and just attracted an executive from one of the really big firms to take them through to their journey to IPO. So that growth rate was accelerated because of that research insight of, of understanding that there was value in there and redefining sort of this sacred cow. And this gets into this idea of, again, I, I love the name blind spots because blind spots aren't just in what you don't see in the competitors and some of the earlier stories. Blind spots are in the stories we tell ourselves. Last question for you. When you think about your career, all the things that you've done, all the things that you will do, what is it that you most want to be remembered for. So Ooh, that's a great one. Finish the sentence. You know, Chris was that guy who Hmm, boy, that's a wonderful question. You know, for me, I think the outcome that's most ultimate is the relationships that you build and the trust that is garnered from somebody spending a lot of money with you to get a certain outcome. And so, you know, what I, wa- uh, what I most want to be remembered for has to do with that old adage of we, we do what we say that we'll do, that the, that the words that come out of the consultants here at Software Pricing Partners matter, and that when we say we're going to do something, it, it gets done. And I think that in the current state of the world of capitalism, Maybe one of the biggest failures that I'm not super excited about is when people's words don't match with their actions and maybe we're really good at sales and people are promising really great things, but like there's no there there. So I think in the end, it's, it's what my grandfather used to tell me. You can have any contract you want in the world, but if somebody wants to get you, they're going to go out of their way to get you. But the one thing that you can always rely on, at least from your own way of being, is the handshake and meeting another person, making eye contact and, and the words and the promises and the commitments that you make matter. And I think that means a lot to me on the personal front and means a lot to me on the services front with our customers. And that was Chris Mealy, CEO of Software Pricing Partners. If you want to learn more about monetization strategy, feel free to visit softwarepricing.com where you'll find a litany of articles, ebooks, and case studies on the topic. 
If you like this show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. And as always, thanks for listening.